Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. The last thing that she taught me was about what we carry in life. And if you think of yourself as walking through life with your arms out, then for so much of my life, I had carried my work, my books, my papers, my computer bag, my accomplishments, my money, my reputation. And now all of a sudden, in my late 50s, I was carrying a child. And there was no comparison between the two. And of course, it was my job to carry her. It's all of our jobs to carry our children. It's your job to carry your child that you clearly are moved by. And if we have the means, it's also our job to carry the poor and the sick and forgotten children of the world. This week, best-selling author Mitch Album on Chica, the little girl from Haiti who in her short time on this world completely changed his. Stay with us. Full Disclosure airs on VPM News, using the power of media to educate, entertain, and inspire. More at vpm.org. Joining me from NPR New York is Mitch Album, one of the best-selling authors in history. Seven number one New York Times bestsellers, more than 40 million copies sold worldwide. Uh, obviously, you know Tuesdays with Maury being the best-selling memoir of all time. Uh, you might not know that Mitch founded nine charities in Detroit and operates the Have Faith Haiti Orphanage in Port-au-Prince, Haiti, which you visit monthly and which is the linchpin of his latest, uh, Finding Chica, a Little Girl, an Earthquake, and the Making of a Family. How are you? I'm fine, thanks. I do want to uh, kind of get at something metaphorical that I can't get my head around. Um, Chica was born into kind of the disruption of this this massive cosmic event that Americans don't seem to remember. I remember this time because my son was born in the vicinity of the the Haiti earthquake, but it's like the earth shook. She's a, a newborn. Her house falls apart. She spends her first few days in a field on leaves and ends up in a in a roundabout way with you in Detroit. Uh, when you think back to that, I don't I don't know if metaphor describes that, if serendipity, if fate, if uh, this was a this child was destined to meet you and your wife. I don't know. There's a lot of that. Uh, for me, it was 20 years from when I found out that my old professor, Maury Schwartz, was dying from Lou Gehrig's disease. It was 20 years almost to the week that I found out that Chica uh, had an, a brain tumor that would prove to be inoperable. So I look at that, for me, as like, uh, wow, there's some kind of symmetry there. And and yes, you're right. Uh, she was born three days before the earthquake, and um, I came down a couple weeks after the earthquake. And you know, the path from Detroit, Michigan, where I live, to um, outside of Port-au-Prince, Haiti, where she was born, and how we ended up together, and ultimately uh, as part of a family, is pretty, uh, <laughs> pretty convoluted and pretty unusual. But I find that most of the things in my life that have been significant have sort of been like that. You could call them accidents, or if you really trace it back, you can kind of say, well, maybe it was meant to be. Uh, what is it about Haiti? I, I always, you know, everybody struggles with this. This is, I grew up in Miami. We have yeah. a significant Haitian population in North Miami, people I went to high school with. And this place is a stone's throw from the Keys. You can go to the Dominican Republic very easily, and Haiti's on the other right. side. And it is one of the poorest and most miserable places on the planet. If, if you just took away violence and corruption, just the, the infant mortality rate, the lack of access to uh, water, running water, um, sanitation, uh, uh, the, the, the level of deforestation, hunger, cronyism, I, I believe it's the second poorest country on the planet. That's right. And right here in our backyard. Right. And it was a function of the slave trade several centuries ago with the French. And this is just this... Um, uh, you know, it's so easy to ignore. And I just remember 
when I heard about the earthquake, I think I was on I was th- I think I was on the commuter train outside of New York. I didn't even know that Haiti was seismically unstable, and this had to have been the worst injury upon decades and decades of injury. That earthquake in less than forty five seconds killed almost three hundred thousand people, uh, which is almost three percent of Haiti's population. Can you imagine if an earthquake in America killed three percent of the population? That would be like 9 million people dead in less than a minute. And it left almost 10% of their population homeless. Now, when I say homeless, they went from, you know, living in very, very poor conditions or tents or things like that to having nothing, uh, just rubble. And when I went down there a couple weeks after the earthquake, um, and it was only because there was a pastor who came to me who said that he had had this orphanage and he thought it had been destroyed. And... He couldn't get any messages through because, you know, there was no phone lines or anything. And I knew uh, Senator Carl Levin, who was on the Armed Services Committee, and he was able to clear a 10-minute window mm. for us to fly a little plane from Detroit, Michigan, into Port-au-Prince, Haiti. We had a 10-minute window to land. And when we got out, you know, we were amongst the first civilians to be there who you know, because you couldn't fly in commercially. And what I saw will never leave me. And when you say what it is about Haiti, well— it wasn't its history. It was what I saw in the streets there after that earthquake, people wandering around like zombies covered in this white dust, uh, clawing their way through uh, rubble piles of buildings, pulling out rocks and searching for bodies that might be in there, scrounging for any little water that might be found from a dirty puddle in the street because it was the only water they could get. Uh, And then this orphanage, which hadn't been destroyed but had been overrun, uh, by people who had jumped the walls and thought, you know, they might bring food here. It's an orphanage. And so there were hundreds of people sleeping in the dirt. And it was it was so chaotic and so hot and so your eyes were stinging from the dust. And, and yet here were these children, beautiful children, happy, uh, laughing, teasing, playing mm-hmm. with you. And at one point in the middle of all this, I was standing looking at the chaos and I had my arms down at my side and I looked down and I felt these two hands in my hands. And I looked down and there's a little boy on one side, a little girl on the next. And they just were holding my hands and they kind of walked me forward. And I always look sort of symbolically as that was, they were sort of walking me into their world and Haiti's world um, and eventually Chica's world. And uh, I've been there ever since. I've been in Haiti now coming upon January, Mm. will be 10 years uh, every single month. I've been there, and uh, I go for four or five days every month to operate the orphanage and oversee it. Obviously, we have staff down there. We have 52 children that we take care of. Uh, we educate, and we don't adopt anybody out or anything. It's, it's an orphanage in, in name, but it doesn't follow that traditional model. We educate them, nurture them, feed them, take care of them medically. These are kids who have been abandoned or left behind or parents have passed away. And uh, our goal is to get them all college educated and then back to Haiti to make their country better and maybe one day put us out of business. So that's my involvement with Haiti. You wrote this in Finding Chica. I knew this. When children were brought to our gate, I had to look past the appearances because there were so many and so much need. And for every child we could say yes to, even now there are 10 to whom we cannot. The majority of Haitians live on less than $2 a day, and many have no power, no clean water, and must rely on charcoal for cooking. For every 1,000 babies born, 80 will die before their fifth birthday. And I think that's like 10 times the infant mortality rate of, right. of the United States. Right. 
Yeah, it's just it's tragic. Uh, and as you pointed out, you know, there's a storied history to this tragedy. It goes back several hundred years. Uh, Haiti was the first independent, free black republic uh, in, in, in the Western Hemisphere and, uh, you know, outside of Africa and paid a price for it ever since. In 1804, they overthrew the French and threw them out and said, no, this is our country and this is how we're going to live free. And from that point forward, they were a pariah because uh, America didn't want to deal with them because we, we had our own slaves and we didn't want to give them any ideas. And mm-hmm. a lot of other countries didn't want to deal with them the same way. So they were like an, an island, literally, you know, that nobody wanted to trade with or deal with. And they had to spend untold millions of dollars that they gave back to the French on the promise that the French wouldn't come back and invade them again. So their economy was crippled right from the beginning. And then corruption set in, and it's been a series of tragedies ever since. But the people are so warm and full of life and and loving, and especially the children, that I defy anybody who comes down to Haiti to not have a smile on their face when they think of, of the people that they've met there, no matter how harsh the conditions. Well, here's another footnote. I noticed that according to the World Bank, um, Haiti has a human development index ranking of 168 out of 189 countries worldwide. A child born today in Haiti will be only 45% as productive when she grows up as she would be if she enjoyed full education and health. And uh, this other footnote in it, um, I noticed that the World Bank noted that recovery efforts continue more than three years after Hurricane Matthew hit the country in 2016, which caused losses and damages estimated at a third of GDP. Yeah. How many knocks can this country take? <laughs> I mean, you, you, you know, you, you talk about companies in my line of work that are just chronically that are approaching liquidation or takeover. Does the world, does the hemisphere have a broader responsibility uh, to help these guys out? I mean, it, I, I, I'm trying to get my head around what it would cost to, to bring running water to this country, what it would cost to eradicate polio, eradicate cholera, and some of the other low-hanging fruit of, of kind of this—, this a nation that is just time and time and time again knocked down to the lowest rungs of poverty. Yeah. Well, it, it also suffers a triple whammy in that it's fallen out of favor with people who give that kind of money uh, because after the earthquake, there was a lot of attention and then a lot of money was raised and a good deal of it didn't get to where it was supposed to go. And politics got involved and people who were critical of the Clintons uh, criticize their organization because they say, you know, a lot of money was raised in the Clinton Foundation and it didn't get to where it was supposed to go in Haiti and there were corrupt people. And so <laughs> the irony is they need the most help. And now they have people saying, oh, don't help Haiti. You know, you, you, the money will never go there. And, 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 and you obviously know what our current president thinks of Haiti. He used an expletive to describe it. Mm-hmm. And so this is a country that people forget we occupied for about 20 years. Uh, in the early part of the 20th century. So we, we ran it. And so we have some responsibility, not to mention, as you pointed out, it's a stone's throw off of our coast, and yet it gets ignored constantly. And, and uh, you know, and every one of those tragedies that you brought up leaves in its wake untold amounts of children who are left behind or abandoned. You mentioned Hurricane Matthew. The last eight kids that we've taken in are from Jeremy, uh, which is the hardest hit area in Haiti by Hurricane Matthew. And we flew there and uh, said we could take, the first time we could take three girls. We had spaces for three young girls. 
and 59 children were brought to us from as far away as two hours away in flatbed trucks jammed into a truck just to, to try to be considered for those three spots. And they didn't even really know who we were. They mm. just heard that there was this orphanage in Port-au-Prince that was offering shelter. And that's how many kids we had to interview, and we could only take three. So it's tragic. And through all of that, somehow Chica made her way to us. Sometimes I wonder, you know, there's so many kids, would we have said no to her? But her mother died in, uh, giving birth to a baby brother in that same cinder block house that had collapsed during the earthquake. And we were told her father was dead and that she had nobody. And she certainly qualified. And so we, we took her in. You know, the United States, before we get into your meeting, Chica, has a, a gross domestic product uh, north of $20 trillion. And last I clocked Haiti, I think it was at about $9 billion, just to mm. give you a function of, of the, the yawning disparity between the have-nothings and the, the haves. Yeah. Um, and, you know, to say nothing of how much was wiped out by this, this rapid succession of, of natural catastrophes, take me to your first encounter with Chica. And how, how many years you were into the orphanage? I mean, that started yeah. in early 2010. Early and 2010. when you first crossed paths with her. Yeah, and she was brought to us in 2013, uh, early 2013. And uh, she was brought by a godmother, and I remember her very distinctly. I interview all the kids, and uh, as I said, as you said, we can take one for every 10 we have to say no to. So the criteria has to be pretty high, and the need has to be pretty high. And the a godmother brought her in and said that she had nobody, and the godmother couldn't take care of her. She didn't have any money. She had kids of her own. And... Uh, I remember Chica was sitting on her lap hmm. and she was looking at me straight on like, how long is this going to take? <laughs> and uh, she was three years old. And and most kids, when they come in, they don't even make eye contact with me because it's a strange place and they don't know why they're there. And they're, they just kind of look at the floor and it's all I can do to try to get them to look up or talk to me. She looked at me. She crossed her arms. The longer I kept talking, it was like, oh, enough already. And so finally, I started to become a game with us. And so I would look at her and she stuck her tongue out at me. So I stuck my tongue out at her and then she laughed. So I laughed. And I remember saying to myself, boy, this, this little girl has spirit. She's brave. And uh, we ended up taking her in and I didn't know at the time how brave she would need to be. But those qualities would serve her well as the years passed. Mitch, you shared a lot of candor in the book about um, deferring uh, fatherhood, about putting your career first. I mean, you've been so prolific. You've done so many things between screenwriting and uh, the collaboration with with Oprah on Tuesdays with Maury, appearances on on you know ESPN, the Detroit Free Press, and and you know calling the Pistons forever. Um, but you never really had the time to become a father with your wife, right. Janine. And it's like uh, this was a this was a kind of a, a, a strange and serendipitous uh, way of kind of planting fatherhood on you. Yeah. Well, you know, that old Emily Dickinson poem, you know, because I could not stop for death, it kindly stopped for me. Well, it was sort of uh, because we could not stop for parenthood, it kindly stopped for us. And it wasn't it was accidental, obviously. I mean, we uh, uh, were taking care of all the kids at the orphanage, but that's not the same as having one in your home. And when we got this diagnosis, Chica had lived with us for a couple of years at the orphanage. She was mm -hmm. funny and brash, 
bold and loud. And she told all the other kids where they could go and who could play with what. And everybody was just amused by her because she was so small and she was telling everybody else what to do. And then when she was five years old, we got this uh, call from our Haitian director who said, there's something the matter with Chica. And I said, well, what do you mean? He said, uh, her face is drooping. I said, her face is drooping? Yeah, her eyes, her mouth. I said, well, did you take her to our local doctor? He said, yeah. I said, what did he do? He gave her eye drops. I said, okay, this isn't about eye drops. We need a neurologist. There's something going on neurologically. Ultimately, when we finally got an MRI... Uh, well, time out. You did specify in the book that there's exactly one MRI machine in yeah. Haiti. Yeah. One MRI machine in Haiti. Yep. yep. And you have to arrive about four in the morning and you have to bring $750 cash. And then you wait until they have a time for you. And uh, they finally took a picture of Chica. And when they got it, uh, it came back with two sentences uh, as the analysis. And it basically said, the child has a mass on her brain in the pons area. And whatever it is, there's no one in Haiti who can help her. And so my wife and I, uh, you know, basically had no choice. We didn't even think twice about it. We scrambled. We had to get her a birth certificate, which you can get made up pretty easily in Haiti, I hate to say, uh, and then a passport and then a visa and get her to come to the country. And we wanted, you know, the American medicine to cure her. Mm. And we were convinced that they could. Uh, and so Chica moved in with us in our home and she slept in a little bed at the base of our bed in our bedroom. And suddenly, as you point out, we didn't have kids of our own. We got married pretty late. And so... Uh, even though I had kind of delayed it up to that point, then it kind of became physically impossible. We weren't able to, to, you know, have children. And so we sort of accepted, all right, we'll just be the uncles and aunts to all of our other brothers and sisters' kids. And uh, all of a sudden, in our mid-50s, really closer to our late 50s, um, there's this five-year-old who's sleeping at the foot of our bed. And I got to ask, I mean, did you guys fly into Detroit? Yeah. So what was that first, what were those first 24 hours like? Oh, you describe in the book about the first time she saw hot water yeah, from a faucet. Yeah, it, it was, everything was a miracle to Chica. Uh, she went into the bathroom and she turned the faucet, the left faucet, and hot water came out. She yanked her hands back because she'd never seen hot water before from a faucet. We don't have hot water at the mission and very few People do have hot water there, so that was weird. Then, you know, the highway, that was amazing to her, and all these cars traveling on flat roads, because that's not how it works in Haiti. And then traffic lights, she was astounded by, and then mailboxes for some reason. Squirrels, every time she saw a squirrel, she'd scream, squirrel, squirrel, and I, can they hear me? I said, no, they're outside the window, they can't hear you. And, uh, I mean, you name it, television was like God's gift. Uh, we, we tried to keep her away from that, but uh, that was the biggest miracle of all, second only to the remote control, which uh, months in when she figured out how that worked, that was also a miracle. So everything with her was discovery and delight, but there was part of the wonderful process of living with her and, and you know, getting to you know, become a family with her is that she saw the world not only through child's eyes, but through a child's eyes that hadn't seen your world before. So everything was a marvel. A pen was a marvel. You know, the fact that I had paper in my, in my printer that she could just pull out and draw on, that was a marvel. So she was in a constant state of sort of amazement and gratitude uh, for all these incredible things. And we were in a constant state of her wonder kind of washing mm. over us. It was almost contagious, her sense of wonder. And, and it was a blessing. What was the idea uh, th th uh, about this um, 
God, you know, it was, a, it was so difficult for me. I, I don't want to sound cheesy to keep dry eyes when reading this. I mean, in my in my forties now, I'm wearing reading glasses and the light at night with the nightstand. I had to keep taking my glasses off. This is uh, so candid about your discovery about your kind of baptism by fire as a father. Uh, uh, how this child, <laughs> how this child kind of emerged, I think, from the crucible of this earthquake and trauma after trauma, and then and then her coming into a whole different scene in in Detroit. And it seems like schooling you and your wife time and again. There's yeah. that photo of you guys at the what is it, the Franklin Street playground, uh-huh. where she has her nails painted. Um, you know, you're taking a selfie in May of 2016. You yeah. wrote that you spent most of your time together. You taught her about America. She taught you about life. Yeah. Well, she really did. I mean, from uh, the amazement, like we talked about, to well, we took her to Disneyland once, you know, because you got to take your kid to Disneyland if you have the means. And 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 uh, we walked down Main Street, and I was thinking, okay, all these multi-million dollar rides, which one of she, is she going to say? I want to go on that first. And we got to the center, and there's Space Mountain to the right and Cinderella's Castle straight ahead and Haunted Mansion to the left. And she sees this duck come running out of the of a pond and walking across the way. And she goes, look, a duck! And she chased the duck for like 10 minutes with all this multi-billion dollar entertainment complex going on. And I said, well, there you go. That's childhood. Because she didn't know what Disneyland was. She hadn't read anything. So she wanted to play with the duck. Uh, so from from that to her singing to her questions, you know, the way that she would view the world, uh, she would ask us, when am I going to fall in love? Oh. Like almost demanding. And we'd say, well, when you're older, why do you want to fall in love, Chica? Because you guys are in love and I want to be in love. And we said, OK. Uh, and do you know who you want to fall in love with? Kind of. And I, of course, said, do you want to fall in love with somebody like Mr. Mitch? She goes, kind of. I said, what do you mean? She says, well, I want somebody I never met before. Mm-hmm. And I said, OK, why? Because that's how you did it. You never met Miss Janine before, and now you fell in love, so I want to fall in love. And the, the logic of that, like, well, of course, oh. yes, we told her how we met, that we didn't know each other before, and, and so she wanted to mimic that. And when a child wants to be in love like you're in love, you know, it's, it's a pretty amazing thing. I also remember a night early in our process with her a couple months in where we were putting her to bed and she looked up at us and she said very softly, how did you find me? And I thought it was such a sad question. I said, how did we find you? You mean, how did you come to us? And she nodded her head. But when I look back on it, I think she meant it the way that she asked it because for Chica, you know, being found was how it felt like because she couldn't remember her mother. She knew she had a mother, but she couldn't remember what she looked like or anything like that. Couldn't remember really where she grew up. But she knew she wasn't born in the orphanage. Mm. So for her and for a lot of kids who were abandoned or early and came to us young, for them it's like being found because they think of themselves as sort of a cartoon, you know, lost in the forest and then, you know, someone comes in and finds them and takes them to the orphanage. And so that's one of the reasons I called the book Finding Chica. And uh, I noticed that Every time we would walk into the house, if we had been out, even if we went to the garage for something, she would find a towel or a blanket or or something and throw it over her and make us say, where is Chica? Where did Chica go? We can't find Chica. And you'd see the towel kind of shaking because she was laughing. And then eventually she'd throw the towel off and she'd say, there is he. 
you know, because English wasn't her first language, so she'd get her pronouns messed up. But, you know, at first I thought this was just a little game, but then I realized she loved to be found. She loved to be discovered, and, of course, that would always be followed by a hug and a kiss. And, and the idea, you know, that children you know, want, to, want to have a home, and that's what we attempt to provide with the orphanage, and, and, and many of them feel like they have been found. In, in a few sad cases, they were left under trees to die out in the woods or left at a, at a, a tuberculosis clinic, and nobody came back for them. So they really were found and were brought to us. And so uh, that's, that's just a small sampling of, of some of the illumination that, that Chica brought into our lives. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to Mitch Album, the best-selling author. His latest is Finding Chica, A Little Girl, An Earthquake, and the Making of a Family. Um, Mitch, I want to step back for a minute and, and, and um, share with you uh, the kind of things that went through my head when I became a father uh, for the first time. And what this book reminded me of is the question that I had in my head that first year and, and since that uh, this the book again put into sharp relief for me is, and, and I wonder how you jibe it with your other books like Have a Little Faith um, and your own discovery in faith is why... Why must children suffer? What what is the what is the upshot in children's suffering? I don't understand what's to be gained in a uh, you know a, a six month old with dysentery who has no context about the meaning of life or anything else, or a small child struggling in an orphanage begging for attention for anybody to walk through those gates. I have struggled with that myself, Robin, many times, and um, my faith was most certainly tested by uh, Chica's illness. Um, dysentery is one thing, or coming to an orphanage is another thing, but when you're told you have four months left to live, you have DIPG, it's a brain tumor that strikes kids between four and nine and debilitates them quickly, and there's no cure, and it's 100% fatal. There's, that's, not even, that's not even approach fair. You can't even use that ballpark as a parameter for what's the upshot, to use your words, clearly there is no upshot. And I've had to try to form a philosophy about children's suffering. And one of the things that I have concluded is that sometimes uh, when children suffer, um, the byproduct, not an upshot, but the byproduct is that parents have to learn how to prioritize and learn how to take care of them. And in our case, we became better people as a result of taking care of Chica. And we, especially me, reprioritized our lives in order to take care of Chica. And while that's certainly not a justification for a child getting sick, it is one of the things that comes out of it that you don't even think about or realize. Um, and I don't look at it as that we lost a child because that would just be too sad. Um, I look at it as we were given a child. And for the time that we had her, and she lived for two years, which with DIPG is almost unheard of. Mm. Um, so there was some blessing in that. And you have to search sort of for these little things. Otherwise, you will be screaming at God all day long or worse, write God off altogether and say there is no God. And I just... I wasn't able to do that, Robin, because I knew that 
it would break Chica's heart in some eternal view of the world to think that her existence had caused me to lose faith in God. Uh, even her mortality had caused me to lose faith in God because she had blind faith in God. I mean, she just talked about God in heaven all the time. And, uh, you know, for a five-year-old, uh, that has to be sort of cultural. And, you know, it's uh, from the mission and the other kids. But she had great joy in God. She And she... She would say her prayers, and she would talk about it. And so I don't think she would want me to, as a result of her passing, to suddenly become agnostic or atheistic as a result. Well, in one of your essays, you you wrote, um, Chica's radiation began five days a week for six straight weeks on a lower level at Beaumont Hospital in Royal Oak. She was fitted for a helmet and had to lie on a slab as a giant machine shot a beam at her tumor in hopes of destroying DNA in the cancer cells while leaving healthy cells intact. Chica understood none of this, only that she had to stay still, and if she was good, we would go for ice cream or to the toy store. We had chosen not to explain cancer to her. We didn't nickname her tumor. We told her only that she was a little sick right now and these treatments would make her better. Our thinking was, she's a child. Let her be a child. There's no right way to do it. You pick a path. This was ours. How old is she again, the radiation oncologist Dr. Chen asked one morning as we watched from a monitor outside the room. She's five, you said. Really? Why? She's lying so still. She's better than adults we treat. Well, she's five, you said. Remarkable, the doctor mumbled. Um, was there was there a hope of, of shrinking this tumor and reversing this and... Uh, how, I don't. I don't know how the. What was. What were the doctors' bedside manner with you? What were they. What were they preparing you for? Well, the first doctor who gave us the diagnosis, uh, I said to him, "Well, what would you do?" Because we didn't know going in. We thought, "Okay, they're going to tell us how long this is going to take, and they'll get everything out, and uh, they'll be done." And instead, you know, they basically told us that they could only have take out about ten percent of it, and the rest was all intertwined with her brain. And he told us she had DIPG, and oh, by the way. She'll probably be gone in four months. So we were shocked and stunned and could barely speak. And I said to him, well, what would you do? And he said, I would take her back to Haiti and just let her, you know, play for a little bit with her friends. And then she'll quickly be debilitated and she'll pass away. But at least she'll be home uh, because you could try to fight it. And there are different experimental things, but they're not going to make a difference. And in the end, it's going to affect her quality of life. And normally I listen to doctors, I take their advice very seriously, but when he said quality of life, I realized such a difference between Ann Arbor, Michigan quality of life yeah. and the quality of life that Chica had known before she got to us, especially no running water, no electricity, no flushing toilets, you know, no travel, no car, no roads that were paved, you know, anything like that, all the things that you listed before. So quality of life wasn't connected. And I said, no, you don't understand. She's a fighter. This little girl's a fighter. And if she fights, we're going to fight. And so we made a conscious decision to try everything we could to keep her alive. And I will say that my wife, right up until Chica's final day, still was believing that there would be a miracle. Um, initially, when we did the radiation, as you pointed out, it did shrink the tumor some, and she actually, her symptoms improved. But they warned us, this is going to be a honeymoon. Don't don't believe it. You know, it's going to come back. But, of course, you want to believe everything good that there is. And so uh, she did have some amazing months where she was running around. She was bloated by steroids, sure. but she was funny and 
all together and running and laughing and playing, and, and we reveled in those. And, and uh, as I say, she ended up living two years, so she proved the doctors a whole lot wrong. And um, those two years were just an amazing period of time. You know, you took her in the autumn of 2015 to uh, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in Manhattan, um, and the steroids were really working on her, and it bloated her face. But even then, the, the wonder of everything she saw in New York. I mean, think about the first time you were in New York yeah. as a kid. And so you're right. She's giddy with the energy of Manhattan, and Janine and I each take a hand as we lead her across busy intersections. I realize had things been different, this could be a snapshot of us 30 years earlier, a happy young family darting across the street. Now we look like grandparents. I mean, even so, you're taking her through Times Square. There are people dressed as Superman, Spider-Man. Right. We take photos. One of the characters on a break removes his large cartoon head. Hey, Chica screams. There's a man inside Mickey Mouse. Yeah. That night in the hotel room, we sit with Chica between us on the bed. I rub her cheek. She's been taking super-saturated potassium iodine to block the potential harm uh, to her thyroid. We've been warned that this operation, which requires precise, hours-long, computer-aided placement of the catheter, might be dangerous. I've been given a form that lists the possible risks, including coma and potentially uncontrollable seizures. You ask yourself, Mitch, who am I to sign this? What right do I have? Who gave me the power? And then I remember checking in at the hospital and being given a badge that read parent. And I signed the form because as a parent, even a substitute one, letting Chica sink is not an option. I put on a happy face and hide behind it as I play with her like a man inside a Mickey Mouse. Yeah. Yeah. I remember that night. I was staring at her because they said, um, you know, it's possible we're going to put this catheter right into her brain and we're going to feed these, uh, this radioactive agent for 12 hours into her brain. And if we mess up, you know, you have to sign these forms. If it's off by a millimeter or whatever, it could kill her. And uh, so I was staring at Chica so much, obviously, that she said, what are you looking at me for? And, uh, you know, the answer was I was trying to memorize her. Uh, but I couldn't say that to her, and I said, oh, I'm sorry. She said, it's okay, you can look, <laughs> you know, which was just the way she handled things. And, um, you know, she did that procedure. I'll tell you what, uh, I write in the book, you know, I, I write seven things that Chica taught me because she uh -huh. lived to be seven, so I pick one for every year. And one of the things was uh, kid toughness, you know, how kids are so much tougher than we are especially when it comes to these kinds of things. And anyone who's ever been to a children's hospital will marvel at, you know, kids racing down the hall holding their IV poles so they can get to the arts and crafts room or something. And Chica was like that. And when they did this procedure and it was through the night, they put this catheter actually into her brain and, they, and, and it, had a, it had a cord that stretched back to the box that it came out of and it slow fed this agent huh. into her brain for 12 hours. So I'm sleeping in a chair across the room all night long and, and in the hospital room. And about 3 o'clock in the morning, I open my eyes, and Chica is standing right in front of me. It was like a horror movie. It's like, meh, <laughs> like that kind of thing. And, uh, and the cord is stretched taut back to the box. Like it looked like it was going to snap out. And I just screamed, Chica. And she goes, I want to go to the toy store. <laughs> it's, it's three o'clock in the morning. So I grabbed her, raced her back to the bed, and the, the nurses came running in, and they called the doctor. He came in at four o'clock in the morning, and everybody was aghast because no one had ever gotten out of bed during that procedure, let alone crossed the floor to say, I want to go to Toys R Us at 3 a.m. But she went right back to sleep, and everything ended up being fine. And, you know, we were total panic. I almost had a heart attack. And 
and she was fine. And it's just that kid toughness. You know, she was so much tougher than we were about all of this stuff. And it enabled us, you know, to, to go on because uh, sometimes when we weren't brave, she was. And that's another thing you can learn from your kids. Chica, uh, well, what did she report back to the, the kids at the orphanage when you guys went back around Christmas of 2015? And was that her first return back? That was from her Michigan? first return. And boy, was that joyous. She had this whole thing planned out about how she was going to go. She, it was like a military procedure. And she didn't want anybody to see her until she got there. So we ended up coming in and she was hiding behind the, the, the front seat. Uh, Mr. Allen, who is our Haitian director, picked us up. And, and and when we came in, the kids were chanting, Chica, 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 all the other kids. Because, you know, she was the first kid we ever took out of there. She was the first kid to ever go to America. She was the first kid to leave the orphanage. So they were all aghast at this whole idea. And now she was coming back and she was hiding. And then when the door opened, they just mobbed her. And they, they you know, it's like the end of Rudy. You know, they are carrying her on her shoulders. And, 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 and when they finally put her down, she just peeled off her sweater, which she wore from the United States, and raced to the swings and jumped on the swings and just started swinging back and forth. And all the kids gathered underneath the swings just watching her swing. I think she just didn't know what to do with all that glee and energy, and she could be a kid again. And so really that was what it was like when she was down there. She didn't really, she never talked to them about medicine or hospitals or anything. She she bought presents for all of them and she gave them out and she just melded right back in. I mean, she she danced and she played and she prayed and she sang and she didn't want to go when we, you know, had to go back home because she was getting to be a kid again. But, uh, you know, it wasn't like it's you think, oh, now let me tell you about America. Here's what it is. It doesn't work like that. She, she would much rather be part of the other 50 than the other 50 want to hear what's going on with the one. And, and, uh, so, you know, she, 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 she was back after five seconds. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We're talking to Mitch Album, author of Finding Chica, A Little Girl, An Earthquake, and the Making of a Family. I want to talk about, um, uh, it wasn't the remission of 2016, but as you say, cancer is a very tricky, tricky foe. You say, if terminal cancer allows a honeymoon period, we were surely in it during the early months of 2016. Chica's walking had improved greatly. She could swim, something she loved. Her left eye had readjusted, her smile was nearly even, and her body was slowly returning to normal. The steroids, blessedly, no longer needed. And I'm struck by this one photo of her staring at herself in a mirror in a hotel room in New York. She's six, and she is uh, wearing a replica of Belle's dress from Beauty and the Beast. Right. And uh, she couldn't get enough of this tableau, and neither could you. Oh, gosh, no. Uh, she loved that dress. And that to her was she could be a princess, you know, and she stared in the mirror in that yellow dress. And she would have worn that yellow dress to bed. You know, she would have worn it to breakfast. She loved that thing. And whenever she put it on, she felt like, uh, you know, she was something special. And this whole princess thing, you know, I remember um, it's funny to see kids analyze the world through princes and princesses. And we never let watch, uh, Chica watch television, you know, in, in the straight up sense of television programs or things like that. But if she wanted to watch movies, Disney movies, we would let her because she so adored them. And a lot of times, you know, she was doing treatments and things. She had to do them. So she really came to love these princess and prince movies, just Cinderella or Sleeping Beauty. And um, I remember one time when she was losing the ability to walk that uh, she watched one of these movies and it ended with the prince kissing the princess and she was clapping. And she said, can I marry a prince one day? And we said, well, you can marry anybody you want. 
And then we said, well, what about Aiden? There was a little boy, one of our nephews, who she kind of had a crush on. He was eight, you know, an older man. And I, we said, what about Aiden? You know, he's a nice boy. He's not a prince. And she goes, oh, Aiden would never marry a girl like me. And we said, why not, Chica? And she said, Aiden would never marry a girl who can't walk. And it just devastated us, you know. And she was just saying it matter-of-factly, like she had accepted that's what the world was going to be. And we, of course, said, of course he would. And yes, he would. It's got nothing to do with it. But, you know, she had sort of accepted things that we hadn't. And uh, I always remember when I think about princes and princesses, that, that anecdote comes to mind. <sighs> what was the other wisdom that she imparted to you? Um, well, there was, a, there was a good deal of it. I mean, first of all, uh, it would, there would be the funny kind of stuff, like she would sing, Doa dear, and email dear, and we would turn around, we'd say, it's female, Chica. She'd say, what? It's female, dear, not email, dear. And she'd think, she'd say, no, it's my mouth, and I can say what I want, you know? So there's, there's a certain wisdom in that. Or, uh, or when she would call me on the phone when I was down in my office writing and, and in the morning, and she'd call me from the phone up in the bedroom, and she'd say, um, Mr. Mitch, do you want to come up and play fluffy, cozy bed camp? Which was a game that she invented. So I'd come upstairs, and she'd be under the covers with my wife, Janine, and I'd get under the covers, and she'd say, these are the rules of fluffy, cozy bed camp. I am the boss. Miss Janine is the second boss. You can be the third boss. <laughs> you know, it's like that kind of logic and wisdom and invention. And then, you know, there was the stuff that hit you sideways, you know, up the, up your head. Like, you know, when she couldn't walk anymore towards the end, I had to carry her wherever she went. She was still chica and she was right. still laughing and playing. She just wanted to be carried because she couldn't walk. So I carried her to the kitchen, carried her to the car, wherever we had to go. And we were um, coloring at the table one time and... I looked at my watch and I realized I was late for work. And so I popped up. I said, Chica, I got to go. And she said, no, Mr. Mitch, stay in color. I said, Chica, I have to work. She said, Mr. Mitch, I have to play. And I said, yeah, but it's not the same thing. This is my job. And she crossed her arms and she looked at me. And she said, no, it isn't. Your job is carrying me. Hmm. And that just hit me like a ton of bricks because you want to talk about wisdom, you know, of course my job was carrying her. It was the best job I've, I've ever been asked to do. And I wrote in the book, you know, the last thing that she taught me was about what we carry in life. And if you think of yourself as walking through life with your arms out, then for so much of my life I had carried my work, my books, my papers, my computer bag, my accomplishments, my money, my reputation. And now all of a sudden in my late 50s I was carrying a child. And there was no comparison between the two. And, of course, it was my job to carry her. It's all of our jobs to carry our children. It's your job to carry your child that you clearly are moved by. And if we have the means, it's also our job to carry the poor and the sick and forgotten children of the world, uh, which is why I have this orphanage and will for the rest of my life. And, and you know, Chica taught me that, that what we carry is is what defines us. And, and uh, in my later act of my life, it appears that I'm going to, to be defined at least to a large degree by children, hmm. which is okay with me. You write that Chica was no stranger to faith. Sunday church and nightly devotions are routine at the Haiti mission, and she was always a loud and joyous force during those prayers. In Michigan, Janine once walked in on her intently singing a worship song to herself. I am no longer a slave to fear. I am a child of God. 
She sang it uninterrupted for nine minutes as if in a private discourse with the Lord, her face calm, her eyes wide. I'm no longer a slave to fear. I'm a child of God. One night she asked if her mommy was in heaven. Yes, she is, you and your wife said. When I go to heaven, will I see her? Yes. How will she know me? She'll know you. Can you walk in heaven? Yes. Can you run? Yes. Can you have candy? Yes. Why? She shrugged, and then it hit me. She was listing all the things she could no longer do down here. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> she, uh, she talked a lot about heaven and her, her mommy, and she asked if, she said, how will she know me? And then she said, how will I know her? Because she couldn't remember her. And those kinds of things, you know, would make you uh, so wistful and you would try to come up with the right thing to say. But sometimes you just held her and kissed her, you know, because sometimes there wasn't really an answer to say to some of those questions. But, uh, you know, those kinds of moments pull you together as a family. And although we only had two years with her, they were two really intense years. She never went to school, so she was with us all day long, all night long. And you learn, I don't know, you know, with your fatherhood, if you've experienced this, but I, early on when she came uh, to us, she was afraid of the light being turned off. And so hmm. I, I said, do you want me to sing you a lullaby and so you can go to sleep? And she said, yes. So I made up a lullaby. Uh, to the tune of Brahms' lullaby, you know, lullaby and good night, go to sleep now, my darling, lullaby and good night, off to Betty bye we go, something like that. Sometimes I'd say her name in it, you know, go to sleep now, little chica. And I never knew if she even listened to it. I only knew was that she generally fell asleep after about nine verses, and that was it. And then months later, we had this night where we had to go out of town, so we let our friends... Uh, take care of her and she slept over their house and that night we got a text with a video from our friends and and the video said chica wanted to say something to you mm. and when i pressed the video chica was it was in the dark and she was singing into the phone lullaby and good night go to sleep now my darling word for word that i had sung to her and i never even knew that she was listening and it remains my most cherished piece of video, you know, that I have from her. Because at the end, she blows me a kiss and she says, good night, Mr. Mitch. And, uh, you know, it's just moments like that that are timeless and stay with you forever. And you realize, even if you only get two years of it, being part of a family Having a child in your life is, is such an incredible gift. And I would trade the other 56 years that came before it for the two years that we had with her if it meant giving up those memories because they'll be the, they'll be the sweetest memories I take with me for the rest of my days. Mitch, uh, the last time you were able to converse with her was on her around her seventh birthday in January 2017. You write that at that point she was in a wheelchair within weeks and that was a, an awful spring for you and Janine and Chica. Due to the tumor surge, her voice would be gone. And um, I'm looking at this photo of you and her in the hospital. She's in bed in February 2017. You write that her swallowing was gone and her speaking was gone, and the tumor slowly crippled her abilities. And um, 
you know, there's there's a, a time where a, a child that was so verbal and there was verbal communication and everything almost mastered the the art of nonverbal communication. You're right, because so much of this felt barely human with all the tubes and catheters and, and uh, the interventions that were needed just to keep her alive. We did all we could to humanize the rest. We read to Chica. We sang to her. We recited a special prayer. Each night we Skyped with the kids in Haiti as they sang their devotions. And one by one, they stepped before the camera and said, good night, Chica. Good night, sister. She responded to their voices like Tinkerbell to pixie dust. I hated to cut off the connection. Sometimes she looked at me silently, and I remembered fixing her toy, and I could almost hear her say, can't you fix this? You're the grown-up. It haunted you. It still haunts you. Yeah. And this is the agency of, of fatherhood where, I, you know, I'm reminded again of that scene where you're thinking back at the hospital where they put you down as parent. You, you're, not, you're not her biological father. A lot of things happen. There are, you know, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of more orphans like her um, that are, are well into their teens or their 20s or 30s who fell into different routes. Um, but I'm thinking of, of at, at this point, how did you how were you not angry? How were you not shaking your fist at the skies and saying, gosh, you know, everything that it took for her to get to us, everything that she had to go through, everything that her mother, her late mother had to go through, um, she being dropped off at the orphanage. On top of it, this this suffering of the tumor and the mm. the, the brutal decline uh, into her passing in the spring of 2017. Well, I, I didn't do that. I mean, I felt that. I felt that every minute. But one of the things you learn in parenthood is that what you feel versus what the child sees, there's no contest. And for me to be railing at God or be angry in the minutes that I had with her— uh, that would not have done her any good. That would have only scared her. And, you know, you, you talk about uh, parenthood. And, uh, you know, I remember my father, like the, my biggest memory of my own father, of all the things, is when I was about six years old, Chica's age, and we were swimming in a local lake. And I swam away from him. He said, don't go too far. And I was exploring. And then these kids threatened me. Uh, they were, I don't know if they were playing around, but they said, let's get them. And they started coming after me. And so I started swimming back from my father and he seemed like so far away. And I kept uh, swimming and swallowing water and thrashing my arms. And finally I got to him and, and, and I grabbed his waist. And even as I'm sitting here talking to you, I can still feel his waist in my arms because I felt safe. And he didn't even notice, you know, uh, but the, and when I looked up, the kids were gone and, and, and I was secure. And I, I write in the book that, you know, I hope, Chica, that I provided that sense of security for you, that I provided that for the kids that we've taken in for the, for the orphanage, because that to me was what fatherhood was, you know, a sanctuary where you could go and feel safe. And if I was to be that for her, then I couldn't be this angry man and uh, letting her see that I was angry and, and letting her see that, that we were fighting. I mean, it happened between my wife and I, and we fought over things. And then one time we were fighting. She was in a hospital room of all places, and we were fighting over something. And she said, hey, what are you guys talking about? And we realized we were being too loud. And, and we said, nothing, nothing, Chica. It's okay. And she said, it sounds sad. And so I came over to her, and I said, well, you know, it is sad, but sometimes adults have sad things. But we also have happy things like you. You're a happy thing, Chica. You make us happy. And she started to cry. And she said, I don't know how. And I said, you don't know how what? 
She said, I don't know how to make you happy now. And that was the last time we had any arguments in front of her. And that was the last time I let any of that emotion show because I realized she ingested it as, I need to make Mr. Mitch happy. What can I do? And I didn't want to put that burden on her on top of everything else. And so I kept my, my anger and my private railing against fate and God to myself. I still do it now, but I also cherish her memories. And so um, I try to counterbalance that because being bitter and angry is not going to change anything. Uh, it's not going to bring her back. And it's not going to reverse course. But the joy I feel in seeing her, watching her videos, remembering her, talking to you about her, you know, I wrote the book for two reasons. Uh, one, because seven years old is not long enough of a life. And I think of all the people that Chica never will get to meet, and I want them to meet her. And so by talking to you, now you know her better, and whoever's listening to this, now they know her, and whoever reads Finding Chica, they'll know her, and eventually she'll be known by a lot more people, um, and she'll live on that way. And the second reason was uh, all the money that the book earns is going to the orphanage, with hopes of building a new orphanage because we're in a building that's 40 years old and is falling apart. Uh, and if we can do that, then her legacy will be a gift to her brothers and sisters, which is something she always loved to do. Whenever she went back to Haiti, she would go and, can we get presents for all the kids? And we'd go get little knickknacks or whatever for all of them. So, you know, I try to focus on those things and, and, and leave the anger and bitterness aside. Mitch, the part that I struggled with came in very, very early on in the book uh, where um, you know, without spoilers or anything, Chica revisits you uh, nearly exactly a year from her passing. And uh, she points to the calendar, and you look at the date, April 6, 2018, and you notice that tomorrow, April 7, 2018, will be a year since her passing, one, one year since she left. Um, is that why you're being this way, you asked? She looks at her feet. I don't want you to forget me, she mumbles. Oh, sweetheart, I say, that's impossible. You can't forget someone you love. She tilts her head as if I don't know something obvious. Yes, you can, she says. There was a night during her first few months with you when you read Chica, The House at Pooh Corner. Chica loved to be read to. She would snuggle into the crook of your midsection, rest the book cover against her legs, and grab the page to turn before you finished. Near the end of that particular story, a departing Christopher Robin says to Pooh, Promise you won't forget about me ever, not even when I'm a hundred. But the bear doesn't promise, not at first. Instead, he asks, how old shall I be then? As if he wants to know what he's getting into. It reminded me of our orphanage in Haiti and how the moment a visitor arrives, our children ask, how long are you staying? As if measuring the affection they should dole out. It's true. And uh, I find this, you know, having now raising 52 orphans, that that's almost a universal uh, trait that... Uh, the fear of abandonment, again, is the biggest thing that they worry about. And they do ask people as soon as they get there, how long are you staying? And if you say to them, you know, I'll be here a long time, they act differently. That's why I'm there every single month and I never miss a month, ever, 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 because they say that to me too. And I'm there, when, how long will you stay? And I'll say, I'll stay here till Saturday or till Tuesday. When will you come back? I said, well, what month is it? And they'll say, you know, May. What well, comes after May? June. Then I'll be back in June, right? And then you can see them smile and say, okay. Then they're okay with it. Uh, and when Chica says to me in the book, and that's how the book is, is written, you know, she comes back. I try to take all the horror out of the book. I mean, we've talked a lot about some pretty tough things here, but it is not 
written as a horrific book, and it's not one of those books where you get to the last 50 pages and you say, I can't read anymore because I know she's going to die. You know from the very first page that she died, but you also see that she comes back and visits me and talks to me and, and inspires me and tells me I have to write a book about her. You know, if I'm going to write, I might as well write about her. And and, and so I, I, I put all that stuff in. And, and, you know, when she says to me, yes, you can be forgotten, the truth is that every one of our kids harbors that feeling because somebody brought them there and then left. And there's a moment for every one of our kids, and I've already gotten pretty practiced at this with 50 plus examples of it, that we always say to the person who brings them, they might be a godmother or an uncle or an aunt, a brother, whatever. We always say, listen, no goodbye scenes. You know, don't do the big hug kiss in front of her because everybody will be watching and and, and the kid will start crying, and then, you know, just wait until the child is playing and is engaged with all the other kids, which, you know, usually they've been there for several days with us, and then just kind of slip out. And you'll come back in a week, and, you know, we'll ease into it. And there's always that moment where the kid looks up and doesn't see whoever brought them anymore, and they start walking mm. towards the gate, figuring that they might be there. And one of the other kids will invariably walk over and put their arm around that child and lead them back to the group because they've all gone through it themselves and they know exactly what that moment looks like. It's incredible to watch. I never have to say anything. The kids will take care of it and they'll pull them back in. And this is the brotherhood, sisterhood that they have with one another, that somebody has dropped them off there uh, and therefore this is their family. And we do everything we can to make that feel like a family. And, you know, the whole idea of finding Chica and the whole story that we had with her was about how we made another family, you know, a subfamily within this larger family. But I think there are many ways to make a family, Robin. Uh, you know, they don't have to look like you, come from you, talk like you. You can be older, younger, adopted, fostered, blended, whatever the case is. But there's no wrong way to make a family. And no matter how a family comes together, as ours did, and no matter how it comes apart, as ours ultimately did, I don't believe you can lose a child. Uh, and I don't feel that we lost a child. As I've said, I, th I feel we were given a child. And she was amazing. And I choose to focus on that. Mitch Album, uh, sir, you are a mensch. And I say this as a, as a Sephardic mensch myself. <laughs> <laughs> I cannot thank you enough. Oh, it's been my pleasure. There's a beautiful symmetry in, in uh, Little Chica finding, I think, one of the most well-known storytellers in the world and, and capturing his heart, and uh, that really is going to live on for forever. Well, that would make me very happy because if Chica could live on forever in, in some way, um, it, would, it would ease the blow of her not being able to live on forever in the other way. So thank you for saying that, Robin. Thank you for uh, such an in-depth and intelligent conversation. Thank you. Please read the book, Finding Chica, A Little Girl, an Earthquake, and the Making of a Family, um, the latest by uh, perennial bestseller Mitch Album. Uh, sir, I can't thank you enough. My pleasure. Full disclosure, our engineer is John Valentine. Special thanks to NPR New York. You can enjoy this show on NPR member station VPM News, on the wonderful NPR One app, on NPR.org, and of course on iTunes at linkfulldradio.com. I'm Robin Farzad, back with you next week. 